Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Anne-Marie Slaughter. I'm the CEO of New America, and I'm very, very excited to be here moderating this program today. I'm particularly pleased to be joined by journalist George Packer to discuss his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. George has spent his professional career writing about U.S. foreign policy for The New Yorker and The Atlantic, and has covered the Iraq War, the atrocities committed in Sierra Leone, civil unrest in the Ivory Coast, the megacity of Lagos, and the global counterinsurgency, as well as the unwinding here at home in America. In his latest book, Last Best Hope, Packer traces the roots of American identity and how division has drastically changed the normal way of American life. The year 2020 brought out the best and the worst of the American people. The year shocked us as we experienced a ruthless pandemic, an inept government response, polarizing protests, and an election defaced by conspiracy theories. But according to Packer, these events did not come out of nowhere. They were symptoms of the hazardous conditions directly beneath the surface of the American dream. We'll be discussing these events and a lot more in the next hour. And I want you to ask your questions as well. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So George, let's begin. Thanks for doing this, Emory. It's so good to be with you, even if we're on different continents. Indeed, indeed. Um, but we can all read and we can still talk about this wonderful book. Um, there's, there's a lot here. Uh, and I actually want to start uh, by, by reading through a number of what you say are accounts or explanations for our present condition, because as I was reading through, I thought, yeah, I, I identify with this one. I don't, I, I disagree with that one. But you say, so here, here are different explanations. The powerful few saw their chance and grabbed the spoils of capitalism for themselves. Alternatively, vast impersonal changes blew across the world, flattening old structures and leaving behind new groups of winners and losers. Or... One party descended into extremism and then nihilism, dragging half the country with it and making the whole country ungovernable. The other party sliced up its half into groups, calculating that the sum of them would keep it in power. Still another. America became more diverse. Those, those who were long silent began to speak and the traditional population sank into hateful opposition. Bipartisan elites sold out their lower com compatriots to a new global order. The end of the Cold War took away our last national cause and set us to fighting among ourselves in ever nastier skirmishes. And finally, Americans went on a self-centered spree that continued for half a century while the common good withered away. And I start with that, honestly, as I was reading them, I was also thinking of the various columnists I can think of whom I would identify with each one. But right. you, you don't try to choose between them. You go in a different direction. You say that actually what, what matters is not so much these specific explanations, but rather the broader stories we tell ourselves about who we are and those stories then inform how we see what's happening. So I wanna just start by asking you how you make that move and then where it leads you in the book. Well, those accounts you read, they're sort of short one sentence versions of much of, you know, whole books have been written about each exactly. of those accounts. And I just wanted to lay them out so that the reader and I are on the same page and know that here's what we're talking about. Here are the, the explanations of what everyone agrees has been an epic shift in American life over the last maybe four decades or so. What is it? Here are different ways we can understand it. I don't reject them. To me, and I have sometimes have a hard time 
making up my mind about things, they all make a little bit of sense to me. Some make more sense than others. I cannot refuse any of them completely, but they all leave me a bit unsatisfied. And I do have my own one-liner, um, which if I could read it, it's right below Absolutely. <laughs> Inequality undermined the common faith that Americans need to create a successful multi-everything democracy. So for me, inequality, which has a lot of different meanings and residences, is at the heart of our malaise and our toxicity today. I went back into recent American history and thought red and blue is too simple a categorization. It is the political breakdown that we see today. But really, within each side, there are fractures and I asked myself, what are the dominant narratives? What are the narratives that have the most influence in our culture and our politics today? And I came up with four. And actually, I first gave the, the talk that this is based on at New America. I don't know if you remember. I do. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> I I've, I've refined it. I've tried to refine it a bit since then and come up with better names. So the first is Free America which is Reagan's America. It's the America that has been the most politically powerful during my adult life. It's the America of small government or even dysfunctional government, of low taxes and deregulation and allowing business to have a free hand and really seeing us as individuals, each of us scrambling to make the most of our energy and talents, but not as a society of citizens. We are entrepreneurs, we are taxpayers, we are um, employers. We are not citizens in the vision of free America. It's been really dominant. And it, I think it was the guiding ideology of the Republican Party for maybe three decades. There's so a kind free of, in the sense of, of being unfettered. Unfettered. It's, neg it's what the philosophers call negative liberty, not the positive liberty of self-government through free institutions, which I hope we'll come back to. That's Tocqueville's well. definition of freedom. The, free, the modern freedom of free America is negative freedom. It's the freedom from constraints, especially the constraint of of government. It was a reaction to the 60s and 70s and to stagflation and malaise and things that some people in the audience probably remember with, with some anguish. Well, um, I have to just stop you there because yeah. you have an absolutely wonderful riff on the 1970s. Uh, you and I were both teenagers in the 1970s and you say, you know, it was this kind of leftover generation. We missed the 60s. We had terrible style, pretty terrible music. And then you, you say, but, you know, looking back, it was the source of everything that's happened since. So I was Absolutely. thrilled to see that you kind of res rescued the, the 70s. Oh, we grew, up, um, we grew up thinking it was all about the 60s, when oh, in yeah. fact, if you look at all the big trends that we are still living with, whether it's deindustrialization or immigration or uh, equality movements for groups, for disenfranchised groups, or... Uh, the decline of unions, all of that started really in the 1970s. So free America chronologically comes first. It's the 70s and 80s. The next narrative is smart America, which is the America of the meritocracy, of the educated professional class, where it has some of the same ideas as free America. It believes that you should be allowed to advance as far as your talents and efforts will take you, but it doesn't have quite the same individualism. It believes that government has a role in giving people the chance for equal opportunity. For example, affirmative action programs, child health insurance, uh, worker retraining, et cetera. So it's, I would say in a way, it's the, uh, it's the narrative of the Clintons who believed so much that education was what would make all Americans benefit from the new economy of the 90s. Um, the problem with smart America, each of these has a problem, as well as, I would say, something attractive. The problem with smart America is the meritocracy stopped being meritocratic. It became a kind of aristocracy that Americans are born into rather than achieving through their own efforts. 
Children inherit so many advantages from their parents who push them to apply to the right schools, to study with the right test prep tutors, um, to do the right extracurricular activities that in some ways the path is cleared and the chances of a poor kid getting into a top Ivy League university are today just as low as they were in 1954. So although we have the rhetoric of meritocracy, I think in practice we have something closer to an aristocratic system in which people are actually born to succeed in that in that class. Third- Can the meritocrats see that? I mean, so we, that to me is yuppie America. That's the America that I came of age in as a professional, right? Where suddenly, you know, I was a woman who could earn my own income uh, as high or higher than my husband's. We both married, we're both well-educated, you know, so the, the advantages just pile on top of each other. But, but does, if you really believe in a meritocracy, don't you see that and fight against it? I think a, a lot of meritocrats go to a lot of trouble not to see it, to imagine that if only we tweak this social policy or if only we allow you know, for a little bit of more redistribution of wealth or a little bit more uh, admissions to underprivileged kids into this college, you know, school or university, then we'll get there. Because it's really only a system that just needs to be sort of tweaked along the margins. Whereas I think fundamentally, it is a broken system that because of what you describe, Anne-Marie, intermarriage, uh, sorting by residence, by region, um, the inequality of regions and of neighborhoods, and the, um, the almost guarantee that if you check off the right boxes and get into the right schools and into the right profession, that's sort of, that's success. Your success is 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 laid out in front of you and although there is such a thing as merit there i don't it's not that i'm saying there's no such thing as merit in our system it has become secondary to the luck of the draw um there's a very good book about this called the meritocracy trap by a, a yale professor named daniel markovitz that i i owe some of my ideas to third narrative is a rebellion not a an elite narrative, but a rebellious narrative that came more from below, and I call it real America, after a quote from Sarah Palin, yeah. who almost personifies real America. She used it on the campaign trail in 2008 in North Carolina, saying, I love coming to real America, where I meet real Americans who work hard and grow our food and fight in our wars. And she was making a very divisive um, distinction between basically them and us. We smart Americans in the cities are not real Americans. Um, at the time, she seemed like a, a kind of um, interesting and highly flawed uh, glitch in the political system. I think she was a really important early warning sign of Trump. I called her John the Baptist to the coming of Trump. Um, <laughs> And by 2016, white identity politics, which is essentially the politics of real America, had become a powerful enough force that by a whisker, it got Donald Trump elected and became what we now call right-wing populism. But I think of real America as a, a more, I don't know, evocative term because it's, it's the, the core of a belief. We are the real Americans. Those elites on the coast, they're just living off our work. Those non-white people, those immigrants in the cities, they aren't real Americans. They are either freeloading off of us or they're getting in here um, illegally. They're not real. So uh, there's a certain person who is the real American. It's white, it's Christian, and it's heartland. And this goes way back to like Andrew Jackson, who spoke to the farmers and mechanics and laborers. These are all in some ways old American identities that have been um, redeveloped today in the really uh, polarized politics that that we live with. And interestingly, you point out, and I think it's worth stressing that Barack Obama, with his, you know, they cling to their guns and their religion comment, and Hillary Clinton with her deplorables comment, played right into that. Uh, and indeed, 
that starts the dynamic of the more that Trump outraged the liberals or the, the coastal elites, let's say it's not, it's not yeah. necessarily party affiliation, you know, the better he did, right? It was exactly the assertion of we are real America. Deplorable became a badge of honor. Um, yeah. I think Obama's comment, and by the way, those were both made as was Sarah Palin's comment in front of donors at campaign fundraisers, which is the only place candidates actually tell the truth. Um, and then they, <laughs> that they was all a great got, yeah, and then they all got <laughs> leaked and then they had to do a lot of explaining, but that was what they really thought. Yeah. Um, I see Obama as kind of the quintessence of smart America, a true meritocrat, because he did come from a pretty modest background. Yeah. Um, who spoke the language of justice and of change, but within the parameters that smart America had set up, that this was, we're not going to remake the economy. We're simply going to try to allow more Americans to succeed within the economic terms that were set really in the 1990s. The last narrative I called just America, which like real America is a rebellion against an elite narrative. This one is against smart America. This is a generational rebellion, which we see in culture, in media, in academia, um, like nothing I've seen or heard of since the 60s. In fact, I think the millennials and the boomers have quite a bit in common. Big, influential <laughs> generation. They hate each other, but they have a lot in common. Um, sort of the, the, the idea that they're the first generation ever um, and that yep. the, the, the previous generation is corrupt and doesn't know anything and should be cast aside. Just America is the narrative of social justice, which says we are not making progress. This smart American narrative is a lie. Um, yeah, maybe there's a few people who are being allowed into the meritocracy, but basically we have a, a society of a caste system in which groups are in relation to each other as oppressor to oppressed, and it's always been that way, and it may always be that way. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of room for change in just America, maybe more in terms of a revolution of consciousness than of actual material and social conditions. So I think of just America as a powerful rebuke to the maybe the complacency of smart America but it swept it aside. It doesn't believe in meritocracy. It still lives in the meritocracy. It still, you know, in some ways has the advantages of it, but it has replaced the terms of accreditation. And instead of um, succeeding on a standardized test, success is determined in some ways by um, your position on issues, the language you use, um, the whether or not you have embraced um, the, in some ways, the political ideology that comes with just America, which to me, and we may disagree a bit about this, to me has an illiberal tendency that worries me. It has something in common with real America. They're both in some ways valid repudiations of a earlier failed narrative, but they both bring with them a kind of extremism and illiberalism that doesn't seem likely to replace it with something that most Americans will want to identify with. So those are the four narratives, and that's right around the heart of the book, the middle of the book. Well, and I do think, as I said, that, that you, you give us ways of making sense of ourselves. And much of what you're, you start with, where you roll out these eight possible explanations, as you said, is that we're in this time of just tumultuous change where you, you really look around and think, is this my country? And you know, I, I say that from where I sit on the political spectrum, but uh, so much of, of the what elected Trump, what were plenty of people looking around and saying, is this my country? They didn't recognize the pres an African-American president. They didn't recognize the cultures, all of that. Uh, so you give us ways of, of that that we can make sense of who we are and what we're going through, and I think it's hugely helpful. 
you reject, you, you recognize parts of all of them as you recognize parts of those eight explanations. And I did too. I think it's a very fair-minded way to start the book. But then you reject these four and you say, you know, I have a, I have a fifth uh, narrative and I want to ask, you call it the equality narrative. I'll say right away, you call it the equality narrative. In just America, you don't talk about equality anymore. And you note this, you talk about equity. Uh, and you talk about equity because equity accepts that people start from different places. There's the famous little cartoon of people, you know, a short person and a tall person and a medium-sized person trying to look over a fence and equality gives them all a thing to stand on that is the same height, which doesn't help. And equity gives them each a tailored thing to stand on so they can see over the fence. Um, so I just, I will, will come back to just America, but it is striking to me that you reach for an older conception, not of equity, but equality. So talk about, yeah. um, you know, what you mean by equality, equal it's a great, America. Yeah, it's a great question. And I've really wrestled with equality versus equity because I see the reason for equity. I mean, I see why, for example, um, if black farmers have been systematically dispossessed by generations of agriculture department policy and by the practices of the white farmers around them, then giving every farmer um, the same debt relief is, um, is kind of pointless. It doesn't help. So in some cases, in some uh, contexts, Equity seems like the only, it means fairness, and it seems like the only fair way for government to treat us, which is to say the, the most disadvantaged should get the most. I, I absolutely agree with that. I'm not sure it always breaks down by race, though. And the thing that gives me pause about equity and about just America is that it, it thinks in such rigid terms about identity groups that race almost has become an essence for just America. It's the core of our identity before anything else. And we now have school children being taught at a very young age that whiteness means this and blackness means that. And to me, that's, that's what I mean by illiberal. It doesn't take us as individuals. It doesn't see the complexity uh, of each individual and of groups, which are after all complex things as well. Um, and in the end, I think it's, it's probably a dead end. It's, it's so divisive that it's, if it pursues these monolithic um, group identity thinking, it's going to end up dividing Americans and making it impossible really for disadvantaged Americans of all races to come together because they're going to see one another as rivals, as competitors. Um, my version of equality well, equal is the first key word in the Declaration. Um, it is the beginning of the American idea. Tocqueville came along in the 1830s and found that it was not just an ideal, but really it was a desire. It was like a drive that people had. I want to be as good as everyone else. I want to be kept out of nothing, to be, uh, I don't want to be looked down on. I don't want to have an inferior status. I want equal rights, equal opportunity. It doesn't mean everyone has the same results. It never has meant that in American life. We still have enough belief in individual effort and in mobility that we have not become um, a society that looks entirely at results. But equality, I mean, this is in Whitman, you know, equality is the thing that um, makes us see one another as fellow citizens. And if we don't feel equal to others, as no, as throughout our history, groups have not felt equal, we don't have a shared citizenship and self-government breaks down and we turn to conflict and even war. So I go through several crises in American history, the Civil War, the Great Depression, the 1960s, and each of them, I think, is about equality. Each of them is about the failure of, of the country to extend equality to, to all citizens in different ways. So without at least um, a sense of the possibility of equality, we have endless conflict. And I think it goes back to the declaration, but it also is in, 
a kind of identity. And I'm trying in this book to find something we have in common. I'm making maybe a, a doomed effort to see us all as Americans because we now see each other as enemies and as aliens. And it, to me, that's become such a destructive course, both in the media and in politics and even in daily life to some extent. I want to find something binding. And this code of equality is something that binds us. And without it, when whole groups are left out of it, as they've always been and as they are today, um, we get into deep trouble and self-government itself breaks down. We become incapable of collective action. We can't solve our biggest problems. So I think equality and self-government are tied to each other. Uh, and the book, in a way, is an attempt to show how much they need each other and how they we have to restore them both at the same time in order to get out of the deep hole that, that we're in. So, so I, I want to note just on your distinction between equity and equality, it is interesting that, you know, in the law, I was a law professor for 12 years, you know, there's law and equity. And law is the system of rules that applies equally to everyone. And equity is customized judgments. You know, it's Louis XI sitting under a tree uh, in France, giving people what they need. So it really is this tailored uh, approach, but of course it does not have the universality nor the concreteness of rules. Uh, and I hear you in, when you, we talk about equality and equity as, as concepts, but I, when I hear you talk about equality, I wonder why it doesn't drive you straight into the arms of just America, leaving aside the, the kind of equity issue. But, you know, I look at the promise of America, and, and indeed, uh, Theodore Johnson has just published When the Stars Fall from the Sky, uh, Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. And, you know, it, the promise is a promise of equality. It has never, we've never delivered it fully. I am old fashioned enough as a liberal to think that the circles have steadily widened <laughs> to declare where I, I am. I agree. Uh, but, but you do also have to say, you know, you and I are roughly of the same age, you know, yes, Martin Luther King and the Voting Rights Act of 1964, but schools are as segregated now as they were in the early 70s. I mean, in other words, why? doesn't that drive you to say until we grasp the nettle of race and squeeze the hell out of it until we fully 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 accept the way it has poisoned everything we do we can't get to equality i actually i agree with that i i say in the book that that has been the great contribution of just america it has forced us to see the straight line from slavery through jim crow to the second class status of so many black Americans today. Not all, because the circles have widened and class plays a really important role today. And I think we minimize class in this country. We don't really like to talk about it. We think of ourselves, for a long time, we thought of ourselves as being so fluid that class doesn't apply here the way it does in European democracies. Class applies here. We are less socially mobile than these former aristocracies like Japan and Austria. Um, and so I, partly I want to pay attention to what I call material conditions, which I think just America has a way of neglecting because it focuses so much on language and identity. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'm more of an old fashioned social Democrat <laughs> or democratic socialist, but I, I believe <laughs> what I can see and what I can um, what, what is unfair and unjust that my own eyes can, can, can understand as well as what feels unfair and unjust to the individual subjectively. Um, so I, I wanna embrace just America and I partly do, but it keeps pushing me away and pushing a lot of people away by telling us, you know, you can't say that anymore. That word has been banned by, um, telling people that you're gonna, you'll be fired if you question this principle. For example, the, the editor of the Journal of, America, of the American Medical Association was recently fired, not for anything he did, but because someone on a podcast that JAMA has questioned whether 
structural racism has played as much of a part as socioeconomic conditions in keeping people disadvantaged. To me, this is an entirely legitimate question. William Julius Wilson wrote a whole book about this a generation ago, but now those guys are no longer where they were before because that question is out of bounds. And this is where just America is making a mistake, partly because it's alienating people with its what I think of as a kind of moral coerciveness and partly because it's not going to solve social problems if it can't allow open discussion, which is the only way we get to the truth. And it's always a partial truth. And it also doesn't really want to look at certain facts. It bans discussion of what is called the achievement gap, for example. That's a simple phrase for the persistent gap uh, in schools between the achievement of black and white students. You can't use that phrase in a lot of just America circles because it suggests that maybe there's some individual role here instead of simply structural racism being the cause. That's a huge change that's happened really quickly, Anne-Marie. And I'm uneasy with intellectual and moral structures that are put in place overnight that suddenly make it so that we can't have what I think of as necessary conversations about difficult issues. So. I, so I've got to push back a little bit, yeah, uh, and I do want I want to I want to remind everyone who's who's uh, listening, watching to put your questions uh, in the chat box, and I will then see them and be sure to engage you at least indirectly in the in the conversation. Sure. But I, as I hear that, uh, on the first point, in some ways I totally agree with you. But to be absurdly puritanical is very American. I mean, in ways that I despair, but I, you know, I'm half European and the Europeans are always rolling their eyes at American Puritanism. And, and this, as far as I'm concerned, is just the latest round of you know, Hester Prynne, <laughs> but it, it has a deep, deep uh, tradition. It had a, a tradition in, in abolitionism and in, in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. God, thank God, you know, if you think about and in it. The, in the but, original Pilgrims, right? I mean, it, totally. You can totally. see you are no fun. Yeah, original <laughs> sin and confession <laughs> and repentance and redemption. I see them every oh. day on Twitter. All um, of that, all yeah. of that. But, yeah. but, but here's the piece where I really do disagree. And you say, you say in the book, and you said here, you know, there's a shift from objective to subjective, from the general to the personal from the, the way in which racism is embodied. Uh, and indeed, in just America, that really does mean embodied. But I have become convinced, and maybe I'm partly e more easily convinced because of my own experience as a woman, even though I'm a white affluent woman, I definitely have had experiences where the stress of being constantly something that I'm not actually, that of playing a role of, of being what I know I have to be to succeed in a world that is still shaped by men. I look at you know women of color and their health results. I look at their, their mortality uh, in childbirth. And of course, some of that is, and we know that, that, that African-Americans are paid less attention to when they tell, tell doctors they're in pain. But I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that there really is an embodied pain and stress that comes from constantly being afraid it, it, in, in many cases, in cases that white, men, white people, not white men, but white people are not afraid, physically afraid, but also just constantly having to be vigilant. Uh, in what, again, in, in being not allowed to say what you really think. And one of the things we've been discovering at New America is when you really do create safe spaces, people who say one thing to your face really say something else when they're, they're comfortable. And again, I've had experience of this with women. So I, I want to push back because my instinct for a long time would have been where you are and I believe in free speech and I certainly don't like sort of militant exclusion. And I agree with you that really talking is the way to go, but I think it's a mistake to dismiss the subjective so quickly. Yeah, I hope I don't dismiss it. Um, the book has a polemical edge to it that may have come across as dismissive. I don't dismiss it. 
But to me, that all comes under equality, Anne-Marie. That all means how do we treat each other and how does that treatment, um, how is it internalized? How does it become um, part of your psyche and your health and your body? I, I think of equality as the umbrella for how we get beyond um, this legacy. And Just America is pointing to the legacy. It will not let us look away. There's a right. shelves and shelves of books now about slavery, about Jim Crow, about um, mass incarceration. This has been an enormously important, I think kind of a rebuke to what had become a complacent liberal narrative that slowly, incrementally, we were getting better and better, closer. I mean, Barack Obama, always said um we're not perfect but we're becoming more perfect there's a kind of upward narrative that he i think truly believes in and i believe in it most of the time too but this movement has forced us to say not so fast the past isn't dead it isn't even past as william faulkner said <laughs> all true he lived in the south it's never yeah yeah where there where the past is, is around you all the time I just don't know that Just America has the answers, that it, that it really has more than the critique. And the critique is powerful, but when I see how alienating um, that some of the practices can be for ordinary people, maybe among elites it's become normal to apologize for yourself at the beginning of a meeting, but I think for most people it doesn't feel right that we have to approach each other with so many constraints and priors and, um, and, and such a careful and rather alienating expert language that has gr grown up around this narrative. I think it, it keeps out a lot of Americans who don't maybe aren't as educated and don't know the language and maybe don't think that way. And I've begun to feel, and this is a bit strong, I know, but it's even, I begin to feel that it keeps the working class divided. It has a way of pitting people against each other when actually their interests are common uh, more than they are opposed. And it keeps the professional class in a comfortable place. Um, I know I'm seeing things more in class terms than you are, but that's that's what I see through in, in a lot of the media that I consume on a daily basis. Um, where there's a kind of continual boiling of the pot that maybe isn't aligned with what people go through every day and feel we are becoming a much more interracial society, even since two, the year 2000, uh, than we've ever been before. It's a dramatic development in people's social lives, in their married lives. And yet you would think from the narrative we're talking about that we are a caste system in which there's an absolute barrier between people who can't understand each other, who uh, can't speak a normal language together, and who have no common history as Americans. I, so, I think it's both a, a, an inaccurate um, description and also a divisive prescription. Um, as, as much as I accept a lot of what you said, and I don't want to be put in a position of seeming to be rejecting it. I'm not rejecting it. I'm saying the, the form it takes today, I don't think is the right direction to go. And I think it's a dead end. So let's try to model exactly the kind of conversation we truly wish people were having. And I will say that there's a lot of what you're seeing in Just America that is deeply performative. And indeed, I was a law professor when critical legal theory, including critical race theory, first came on the scene. Right. Um, and I dismissed a lot of it as a, you know, a good liberal, like, you know, get, forget all that, just just do, do public interest litigation, you know, follow, follow in the shoes of Thurgood Marshall, et cetera. But, but here's how I, so, so what would you say to the response that says, your, your reactions are trying to tell, to put folks back in their place, that when they start to say, when they start to express the anger that is deep 
And as we understand more, I mean, simply watching the videos of countless shootings of unarmed black young men and women, um, and realizing as the parent, of, at least as the parent of two sons who were teenage boys and definitely got up to all sorts of things and realizing I never was afraid in the way that my, my you know, fellow mothers of color are afraid, that there's so much anger and they're finally letting it boil over. And now those of us who are still in power and definitely still control, you know, look at look at any measure of power. Yes, lots of people of color have made progress, but we are still firmly in charge. And and now we're doing sort of what the clergyman did that Martin Luther King wrote to in the letter from a Birmingham jail saying, oh, no, 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 slow down. You know, it's going to get there. It has gotten there. It's getting better. And they're saying, you know, if we were in power, and of course we are heading for a plurality country, things would really look different. And we're not going to stop and play by your rules anymore. How do we respond to that? I guess the, the first thing I'd say is I don't believe that, that members of large groups all think alike. I agree. And, and, and sort of ascribing a single outlook or narrative to an entire group of Americans, 12%, 20%, 40%, is a, a kind of tendentious aspect of our culture today. And that's one thing I'm trying to resist, is to say we're, we do not think in groups, we think as individuals, even though groups have had common experiences that have shaped thinking. I have this fantasy in the book that may answer your question, where rather than doing it on Twitter, rather than doing it um, in a diversity, equity, inclusion seminar, rather than writing an op-ed, rather than doing it in a classroom, I, all of these in one way or another are performance spaces. What we need is for people to tell each other the truth and to find a way to do it. And if you created that at New America, then more power to you. My notion is to have hundreds of American conversations between people of different groups, different races. And if people want it to protect their identity so that they don't become public targets and spend an hour in a room together being filmed, talking, telling the truth, just telling each other the truth and seeing where that takes them and listening to each other as well as talking to each other. Film them, put them on YouTube, hundreds of these conversations so that Americans from the whole country can go onto YouTube or maybe some less destructive platform um, and, and watch them and learn from them and talk about them and maybe keep the identities anonymous in order to make it truly honest I would like that honest conversation that you're talking about. I just don't think our current um, culture knows how to do it. I think what we know how to do mostly is perform. Um, social media, this simple invention has turned us all into um, vituperative, nasty versions of ourselves. You meet the people in person and you find that they're actually quite pleasant and kind. And on social media, they turn into spitting vipers um don't do it that way but we do everything that way and it i don't think it i think it's raising the temperature beyond what we would actually have if people had honest conversations without social consequences without worrying about the repercussions so that's my little fantasy idea that might answer your question so we have we have two questions and i want to get to them uh but i, I will just say, and we can come back if there's time at the end. I do agree with you about the conversations. I will say though, I've had those conversations over the past couple of years in a way I never ever had before because I never ever knew anyone of color close enough, really well enough to get, to get into it, to ask things that um, I wouldn't have dared ask and to hear things that I think the people I've, I talked to would not otherwise say. And I will say the experience for me has moved me closer uh, to really understanding, uh, to understanding more of what just America is saying. I wouldn't have necessarily expected that, but it, it really has because I've well, come to like, think- It sounds like you've done the right thing at New America in making it possible to have really honest conversations. 
Well, may we do more of it, but let, <laughs> and we'll come back to it. But it, it's, I, I certainly agree it's what's needed, but it's revelatory. Um, so you, there's a question that says, that's very much on, on parts of the book. Recently, I heard a senator describe our form of government as a constitutional republic, but not a democracy. Right. Can this degree of, care, of precision be clarified further? Yeah, the, the uh, listener, the, the audience member is talking about Senator Mike Lee, Republican uh -huh. of Utah, who tweeted that um, last fall, just before the election. And he almost seemed to be saying, you think that the majority should rule and you might well get the majority, you Democrats, but actually that's not what we're about. We protect minority rights in this country. We're a constitutional republic. Demo he called it rank democracy, by which he meant yeah. just sort of raw tyranny of the majority. And I think what he was doing was making a not so subtle excuse for the entire strategy of the Republican Party today, which is to prevent the majority from ruling and to use both the Constitution and new state laws um, and um, the filibuster and everything else you can think of in order to prevent the majority from ruling. Let's be honest, there isn't a large majority for anything in this country. I mean, the Democratic majority is razor thin, but it's a majority. It's one, the Democrats have won, what, seven out of the last eight presidential elections, I think. Um, in order to hold Congress or a state legislature, Democrats need to win by several percentage points because of the way districts are drawn and because of the, uh, the nature of the Electoral College. So we are fighting against ourselves over whether we are a majority rule country or uh, a minority rights country. We're both. They're both in the Constitution. So it's a, it was a word game Lee was playing when in fact we are, I would say, a democratic republic or a, cons a, represent a representational republic or whatever you want to call it. It means we vote, the people choose, and there are certain structures in place that prevent the majority from absolutely tyrannizing over the, of the, over the minority. We're way beyond that now, where uh, so many provisions and laws have been either enacted or abused in order to prevent the majority from even governing. And that's where Washington is every day right now. Um, uh, and I, I, I found Lee's comment to be kind of sneaky because what he was really saying was you shouldn't get to rule. Although it's certainly true, and um, you know, if you read the Federalist Papers, there's a lot about the fear of democracy. But I would say it is the tr uh, credit to the design of the system and the force of the American people that those circles have widened and widened and widened so that, yes, we are a democratic constitutional uh, republic. So we have a, another one, and I'm, I'm so glad to hear this question because The Unwinding was really an important book. I, I've, I, th I may not have read everything you've read, but I've written, but I've started with The Village of Waiting and I've gone through Assassin's Gate. <laughs> so this you. one says, can you please link the work of The Unwinding to what has occurred in American politics since its publication and how this new book builds on it? I think a lot about that. The Unwinding was an immersion in American life, uh, a portrait of America based on a few characters and communities that I spent a lot of time in. And what I found was um, alienation, cynicism, a sense of uh, disconnect between the people and their institutions, whether it's government or media or economic institutions or even church union. Um, people were alone. They were atomized and they were convinced that the system was rigged against them. This is what I heard over and over, whether it was in Western North Carolina, the Tampa Bay region or Youngstown, Ohio, which are the three main regions of the unwinding. So I didn't foresee Trump, but I think I sketched a landscape in which Trump was very thinkable. Someone who played to the resentments of the people against their rulers, against the elites, which is what demagogues do. It's a recurring feature of a democracy um, because the people are supposed to rule, as we were just saying. Well, what if it's the elites who seem to be ruling for their own benefit at the expense of the people? You end up with a demagogue like Trump. 
Um, today, Last Best Hope is more of a, an essay. It's more of a, a thought experiment about how we came to this point. It overlaps a lot with the unwinding. Where it leaves the unwinding behind is in trying to imagine how we could certainly not overcome our differences. That shouldn't ever happen. We should have differences, but be able to govern ourselves together. That's the fundamental activity of a democracy. We can no longer do it. So I have the code of equality as the underlying glue of our identity. And then I have a bunch of not very original ideas for how we could restore equality or actually create it for the first time. Uh, and in doing so, reacquire the art of self-government. That's another phrase from Tocqueville, which he saw it as a, as a skill you have to learn. It's not natural governing yourself. In fact, it's hardly ever been done in human history. It's a miracle we've been able to do it for 240 years, and I hope we can continue. But um, right now, I'm not, I, I wouldn't entirely bet on self-government, not just because we have an authoritarian party and the experience of an, an authoritarian president, but because I think Americans have forgotten how to um, to use those civic skills of debate, argument, compromise, of listening to people of other views, of going out your outside your bubble. So I, you know, I think we could use national service. I think that would be a great way to get people to cross tribal lines and work together on projects. Um, and a bunch of other things, including basic ones like empowering labor and um, breaking up corporate monopolies and giving people more economic power than they have, because I think the channeling of economic power into a few big corporations, giant corporations, has really um, weakened our ability to act as citizens, to govern ourselves. These ideas go back to Brandeis and Lippmann and, and Lincoln, you know, these are old American problems in a new form. And in a way that's reassuring because it's, it, you look back at the civil war and at the great depression and realize we've been through worse. We emerged, maybe not well, but we emerged and we moved on and the circle widened. I think you're right, Anne-Marie. So the, the end of the book is really me thinking about my kids and not wanting to leave them with a picture of the country that gives them no um, motive to try. We have to have a motive to try. So the, the, you raised two points that tie into the next two questions. The next one is, uh, are there any politicians who you think are promoting this fifth America, the, the, the uh, equal mm -hmm. America? Uh, and how can politicians try to do that, uh, given the polarization and fragility of the society? I think Joe Biden is trying. I think Biden doesn't belong to any of the four narratives. I, he precedes them. He's a creature out of the Roosevelt Truman Democratic Party who believes in government doing things to help people and improve their lives, who believes in labor and unions. Biden's whole domestic policy seems to me without him really describing it this way, because he doesn't do that, seems to me to be aimed toward making Americans more equal, both in status and in material conditions. And I sure hope he succeeds. I think by some weird turn of history, he's exactly what we needed uh, at the age of 78 after a long career in which he kept losing uh, his effort to become president. Really one of the... <laughs> strangest turns in American history that you can think of. I think Stacey Abrams is another who really mm -hmm. believes in um, the franchise and the ballot and the right to it as the core of what we, sh we must call democracy in spite of Mike Lee and his aversion to it um, and her persistence at it, which obviously comes from, yeah, some deep, I mean, chances of success in Georgia were not very good, not of electing Democrats, but of getting lots and lots of people to vote. And now, of course, they're trying to make it harder because she succeeded. So she's, she's a good example as well. I have a lot of admiration for Elizabeth Warren, 
mainly because of her economic thinking. She's a mm -hmm. real ideas person. And she reminds me of Frances Perkins, you know, Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor, the first woman cabinet member in our history. She reminds me of Brandeis and La Follette, those progressives from the, um, the progressive era, because she really does think in terms of the little guy and how to make sure that our economy isn't structured so that we're all crushed by the curse of bigness, as Brandeis called it. Um, so Warren is a throwback to an era that I am really keen on and think has a lot of answers for us because some of the problems were also the same as ours. Um, I could go yeah. on, but I'll leave it at those three. No, and I, I quite agree with you on all of them, actually. Uh, and, and Elizabeth Warren, it's the real deal. You know, she, she, you know, she was my colleague for a long time at Harvard Law School, and she was then fighting on behalf of people who were getting ripped, out, ripped off by credit card companies. I mean, really, from her, her focus on bankruptcy, her whole history has been shaped by, by yes, it's, a, it's an older tradition. And she, so and she the, came at it honestly as a former Republican who learned by, yes. by evidence. She, she followed <laughs> the evidence. Yeah. So the next question uh, is the, how have the super wealthy, Bezos, Gates, Buffett, managed to avoid a real reckon reckoning over their role in America's woes in recent times? I mean, not to sound too much like Elizabeth Warren, but they own Congress. I mean, our campaign finance laws have given uh, the plutocrats the keys to uh, to Congress and, and to legislation, which is so often passed when they want it passed and blocked when they want it blocked, no matter what the, uh, the, the views of the majority of Americans are. Um, we have an IRS that's been gutted so that it can't audit them. Um, we have a Congress that creates tax laws where it's perfectly legal for Jeff Bezos to pay no taxes, as ProPublica discovered uh, the other day, along with many other multi-billionaires. Um, you know, there is an old American idea that anyone should be able to get rich. So riches in themselves should not be criticized. Everyone wants to get rich. Everyone wants to have the right to get rich. So if you go around scolding the rich, you know, you're, you're a hypocrite or you, you're not a real American. I would say that is true as long as the rich seem to get rich um, without special privileges and without um, political favors. And throughout our history, it's been impossible to say the rich are rich simply because they're better than the rest of us. They've always been corruption, whether legal or illegal. And today we're just swimming in it. Trump called it the swamp. It was a good phrase. It resonated. The swamp is 20 feet deeper now than it was when Trump became president. Um, have I lost you, Anne-Marie? I think so. You, your picture's frozen. I guess I'll keep talking. Anyway, that's my answer. <clears throat> um, and maybe we should wait for Anne-Marie to come back before we continue. There you're back. Are. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll stop talking. <laughs> I froze. Well, I will. <laughs> we both froze, but but I think your your basic point about the American tax code is is right, and the and essentially just just a tolerance, and you write about this too, of really deep corruption. I mean, we just accept things in terms of how politics is done, and the the writing of legislation by lobbyists and the buying of politicians uh, that, that uh, you know, we've been there before, but but we're, we're there again. So there's a, another question, and then I probably have the last one, but this, I think you will, you will love this question. It says, what is Packer's fifth America, or what is equal America? Is it an America that travels across the other four, or is it something distinct? Is it a lonely place or a silent majority? It's a lovely mm. line. That's beautiful. That's <laughs> it beautiful. is. I would like to think it is more encompassing than the other four. I would like to think it is capacious because by, by the very nature of equality. Um, the other four, each in its own way, creates winners and losers. 
we know who the winners are in free America. They're the corporate class. They're the wealthy. They're the people who came to power with Reagan. We know who the winners are in smart America. It's the college educated, the professionals. And in real America, it's the people, meaning the white Christian people. And in just America, it's a reversal of the old hierarchy. It puts the bottom rail on top. It creates a new hierarchy uh, based on uh, group of oppression. I want us to be able to look at each other as equal citizens at the same level, which I'm not naive. That takes a lot of leveling. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes, the book is full of proposals for how to bring workers up and uh, the, the wealthy and the plutocrats down. But in the end, the whole point is without a sense of equality that we're all in some ways we all have access to the same things. We all are as good as each other. There's no class of citizens that is considered better or worse. Without that, we just don't know how to govern ourselves together. So I'd like to think mine is far from lonely. I think what we're in now is lonely. Everyone is sitting at home, staring at their social media account. That's the definition of loneliness. I want us to get to cut off Twitter and Facebook and go outside and join our fellow citizens in some common effort. But to do it, we need to feel that we're equals. So I, I again, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with the, the sort of what just America wants, because I don't think they, they want a reversal of the hierarchy. But I do very much agree that there's a, and you quote Tocqueville, equality of conditions, right? Giving people a genuine equal starting point uh, and that that does encompass many parts of the other narratives in ways that the, that I find appealing. I'm going to ask you the last question because we're we're almost out of time. You talk about how smart America has trouble with patriotism, and certainly just America has trouble with patriotism. And you know, my favorite definition of patriotism is from Carl Schurz, who was a, a Union general, a German immigrant, a senator from New York, who said, you know my country right or wrong, uh, when, when, when right to be kept right and when wrong to be set right. Mm. Or take James Baldwin, you know, I love America so much that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. Why is it that, frankly, people like us, the, the smart America, why can't we talk mm. about love of country uh, in a way that says, at least for me, that yes, that means constant criticism, but that's because I believe. I believe in the set of ideals. I believe that we can at least get closer, Obama style. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Why, why are we so uncomfortable? I think for some Americans, it's just not a feeling that they have. Maybe they've repressed it in themselves. Maybe it's been kind of washed out of them globalization and and connection to the rest of the world and a sense that they're more like people in their kind of neighborhood in london or berlin uh, are more their people than someone who lives uh half a mile away in a totally different neighborhood it it's it's almost embarrassing for some americans it's it is. associated with flag waving and with the national anthem and with rituals that seem perfunctory and also required. Um, and it's almost like I have this line in the book about it's like a, the traces of, an, of a more primitive time of cigarette smoke and dog racing. It's like, that's what we used to be like. But we've emancipated ourselves from that. We've become world citizens. You know, we have no limits to our attachments. I think there are always limits to your attachments. I'm more loyal to my family than I am to anyone else. And I think of patriotism as, as kind of an extension of that. I'm more loyal to my country. I love it because it's mine for with all of its distinctness. That doesn't mean it should abuse others or should ignore others or should feel superior to others. But that love is an attachment that you know you can't will. It, it has to come. And some people, I think, have killed it in themselves. And others maybe are against it on principle because it seems to suggest that we don't have problems or that we are getting there or that we're in denial. We're not looking at the hard things that we have to keep looking at. And it's dangerous to start um, 
feelings, this attachment to the country when the country itself is such a flawed place. And they, yeah, they, they, they think of it as kind of like a, um, a contagion that might um, get in the way of their, of their, of their moral st standards of, of what they want to be. Both of those are, I think, are a real tragedy because I believe without patriotism, call it national solidarity, you just can't do big things in this country. If you want to end racism, if you want to save democracy, if you want to reverse climate change, if you want to slow down inequality, you need national solidarity. You need to be able to speak to the whole country because these problems are way too big for any one group to have a monopoly on them and to have all the answers and to be able to make the effort by themselves. So in a practical way, without patriotism, we're doomed. We're not going to solve problems. And I look back to the, the New Deal period of Roosevelt and Francis Perkins. Back then, the progressives had a patriotic narrative. I read they, that. Langston Hughes wrote, Let America Be America Again. It's a patriotic poem. It's a deeply critical poem, but he's not going to give up. And he knows that without that attachment to America and its ideals, he's not going to ever get where he wants to go. So that sounds like a bit of a speech. I hate speeches, certainly when I give them. So I'll stop now. But that's where I think patriotism is part of the mix that, that we need today. Well, I think that's a perfect note on which to end. And I do hope uh, everyone listening will buy this book and read it and think about what it is that we, we have to love uh, and cherish, even as we criticize. So I want to thank George Packer, uh, author of his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, uh, for joining us today. Uh, and I want to thank our audience uh, for watching and participating live. I would also like to invite all of you back for a conversation I will be having at the Commonwealth Club in August for my new book that is called Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and Politics, which starts with exactly that poem uh, from George Packer. So we are very much in conversation with one another. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter. Thank you, and stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.